Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hello, and thank you for joining us on our podcast. Today, Jack and I are going to discuss the six common misconceptions about factor-based strategies. I hope you enjoy the discussion. This year, you wrote uh, a good article, The Six Common Misconceptions About Factor-Based Strategies. Um, like you pointed out in the article, there's pretty much an ETF or investment strategy for all different types of factors, value, momentum, um, quality, low volatility. And you know, I think what you were trying to do here, and you can kind of get into it, but is talk about the lessons that you've learned um, in building and uh, deploying and implementing factor-based strategies. Here at Validia, we run a number of different models based on um, strategies extracted from books or academic papers, and, and you're responsible for implementing those and building those. Um, and at the core of those are factors. So uh, if you just kind of want to get into it, and I'll sort of play off you, and we'll try to um, have a good discussion here. Yeah, that's right. We've been we've been building these factors uh, based models for over a decade now, and you know, over, across that decade, we've seen many misconceptions from people about the way these things work, and we've had some of these misconceptions on our own too. Um, so this art, the point of this article is to try to come up with the six biggest mistakes or the six biggest misconceptions we've seen as we've built these models over the past decade. Um, and and the first one was that factor based models are less risky than the market, um, and, and some of them can be less risky than the market. Something like low volatility can be less risky mm -hmm. than the market, but particularly with value, people think that value strategies are less risky than the market. And the reality is typically value strategies are actually more risky than the market, and, and that's part of the reason they work. So when, when an investor buys a portfolio of stocks that say trade at five times earnings or 10 times earnings, they expect they're getting something that's lower risk than something that trades at a market multiple or something that trades at, a, at greater than a market multiple. And the reality is you're not because Typically, if a stock trades at those low valuations, there's something significantly wrong with the company. Uh, and that's the reason it trades there. And so with that comes volatility. You know, the, the stock may have a major negative outcome, which, which some of them do. Um, and so within that is more risk, actually, not less risk. And so when you're buying value stocks, you know, it's important to understand that part of the reason value works is because value is more risky than the market. And so if you're a believer that the market is fairly efficient, then the best way to get an excess return is to take more risk. And so when you're following value, the fact that it's more risky than the market is actually a good thing. Yeah, and I think uh, that risk can express itself in terms of underperforming the market over different periods as well, right? Right, so it can express itself as pure volatility, uh, up mm -hmm. and down the ups and downs of on a daily basis, but it can also express itself as you know significant periods of underperformance. And you know anyone who's following a value strategy right now understand what understands what that means because over the past three years, over the past five years, and even over the past ten years, value strategies have struggled. And so th that is a that is actually a significant risk to individual investors. And I think in a lot of ways it's a bigger risk than the day to day volatility because what causes people to abandon their strategies is when they struggle for significant periods of time. And so the, these long periods of underperformance can be a huge risk to your average investor because it, it will lead to abandoning the strategy at the wrong time. 
Yeah, and I think for us, one of the things that happened is when we first started running these strategies in 2003, you know, it was a great period for value. It was a great period for small cap. And so a lot of our strategies like the Ben Graham value investor strategy or other deep value strategies that we run, which have factors in them, you know, we're doing extremely well. And then since the great financial crisis, you know, value has really struggled. So that's been a really good lesson for us in terms of, you know, no, these strategies don't always outperform. We were, I guess, fortunate enough that we had good performance with many of our strategies during a period where value in particular was being rewarded. But, you know, that's been completely the opposite really over the past five to seven years or so. So that's right. And no matter what, no matter how much you study history, you're very affected by how things work out when you first start investing. And so for mm -hmm. us, we started investing during a period where value was just ripping. And, you know, so you tend to expect that type of performance, even if you know, right. in reality, you're not going to get that type of performance. It, it sort of just changes your mentality a little bit. And so this is for, for all value investors, you know, this period, because this period has been so long, you know, there, there's been a lot of lessons learned here. But when, when you start in a period where value is doing that well, you have to bring your expectations down. And that's just not true, not just true of everybody that, you know, of individual investors that follow value, but it's also true of people like us that build value strategies. And I say it, it's, it's very hard. All the Go factors. Ahead. No, it's, it's true of all the factors as well. It's value, momentum, low volume. I mean, they all have this cyclicality in them where they have periods where they work and periods where they don't work. Um, and when they don't work, you know, it's, you know, it's hard for investors to deal with that type of um, relative underperformance. Yeah. And that gets into our second uh, misconception here. And our second misconception is that three and five year periods are the best periods for judging performance. And that cyclicality you're talking about is the reason that that's not the case. All of these types of strategies, whether it be momentum or value or low volatility, they'll have these extended periods where they struggle. And so if, if you're taking the strategy that struggled over the most recent three years and you're trying to buy that, that can be a good idea. If you're taking the strategy that's done the best over the past three years and you're trying to follow that, that can be a really terrible idea because of the cyclicality of this. And right. because all these strategies you know, have, have these periods that they struggle in the periods, in the periods they do really well. And, you know, typically that mean reverts over time and those reverse. And so you don't want to be using three-year performance either to buy the hot strategies or to, you know, sell the ones that haven't been working. Mm -hmm. One of the charts that you put in your article is from that Larry Swedrill piece. Um, I don't know if it's from ETF.com or Advisor Perspectives. We'll, we'll link to your article in the show notes, but it shows over all the different periods of time. So over one year, three years, five years, 10 years, the probability of a factor underperforming. And um, it's pretty amazing, like when you when you look at it, like, you know, to talk about value, you know, on a 10 year over, you know, rolling 10 year periods, you know, value, there's a 14% chance of value, systematic value, you know, underperforming, um, which that's probably a lot higher than many investors, you know, might think and certainly a lot longer period than the vast majority of investors can deal with. Yeah, I think that was the most surprising thing to me, too. When, when you look at this data, if you, if you surveyed most investors and said, you know, can these strategies struggle over 10 plus year periods, you know, you'd find a lot of people that don't that feel like they can't. Mm -hmm. But all of them have had significant periods and momentum's the best with only 3% of 10 year periods where it underperformed. Right. But something like value, like you said, is 14%. Something like size, which, you know, there's debate as to whether size is actually a factor, but mm -hmm. Size is underperformed 23% of the time. Profitability, 15% of the time. Quality, 9% of the time. So all of these have had at least some 10-year periods where they underperformed. And it just shows what it takes to stick with a factor strategy. Yeah. Because you're going to have to sit through these periods where you're struggling for 10-plus years at times. It's, mm -hmm. not, it's not a common thing. It's not what happens in most 10-year periods. 
But if, if the luck of the draw, you know, plays out that way, it could be the 10-year period you start following one of these strategies. For people who started following value after the financial crisis, by the luck of the draw, one of these 14% of these 10-year periods is the one we're going through right now. And if you can't stay with it during those periods, you can't achieve the, you know, the excess return that these factors achieve over time. By the way, it's not in the chart, but this is something maybe you and I will talk about in a future podcast. But what he also shows, and we didn't include it in the chart in your article, but is that blended sort of these uh, blended strategies that take all the factors into consideration, you know, can help, I think, uh, minimize those. You're still going to get periods of, you know, underperformance, but I think it helps minimize um, the potential for that. That's right. Some, some of the simple blends he did actually had 0% chance of underperforming over 10 years, at least historically. So by blending the factors, particularly value and momentum, because value and momentum, the excess returns of value and momentum tend to be negatively correlated. Mm -hmm. So by blending those two together, you can get a comparable return, but do so with less of these long extended periods of underperformance. So we'll try to come back to that maybe in a future episode. Um, Number three on your list is that the biggest key to performance is the strategy itself. That's a misconception. That's right. You know, most people spend so much time building these strategies and they think that building the perfect strategies is what's going to get me the best performance over time. And certainly constructing a good strategy is very important. But the most important thing is the investor following the strategy and the ability of that investor, as we talked about before, with these extended periods of underperformance, the ability of that investor to stick with the strategy no matter what happens. And that can be really difficult when you're struggling for 10 years. You know, when you're struggling, you're 10% behind the market in any given year, it can be really difficult to stick with these strategies. But that's what's going to determine whether you're successful or not. And, and that's where your conviction in the, in the type of factor you're following is really important. Because for some people, value could be the strategy that they should follow because they're big believers in value and because they think it's going to work over the long term. And so when those types of people go through a period like we're going through right now, they're more likely to stick to a value strategy. But for another investor, they might be a big believer in momentum. And if, I'm a big, if you're a big believer in momentum, you're more likely to stick to a momentum strategy. So you should follow a momentum strategy. So even if the, the excess return between, these value, between a value and momentum strategy is a little bit different, you can be better off following the one with the lower return if you're mm-hmm. more likely to stick with it. And if you can't stick with any of this, if you, which is probably, to be honest, most investors, if you can't stick with periods where you're struggling over five years or 10 years, your best bet is just to index because an index fund is going to produce better returns than a person who follows these factor strategies and then bails on them when things aren't going well. Yeah, and what I would also say is that, you know, investors are, uh, you know, uh, performance, you know, many investors chase performance. So you have periods like the late 90s where growth momentum are doing phenomenal investors pile into that. Then you had, you know, that completely fall apart. Then value had a great run from 2000 to 2007, you know, people pile into value. So it's this, you know, unfortunately, a lot of investors sort of chase that performance and you don't want to chase the performance of factors. I think to your point, you want to find, if you're going to be a factor-based investor, find strategies or factors that you believe in, that you can have conviction in and stick with them for the long term and certainly not be uh, a performance chaser. That's right. Yeah. Performance chasing is is one of the worst things you can do in factors. And there's times, you know, short-term momentum does tend to persist sometimes in factors. So there there are times where you can buy the hot strategy and it works, but it it falls apart eventually. And and it's a Mm -hmm. very difficult strategy for an individual investor to follow. You know, I I wouldn't recommend anybody do something like that because it's very difficult to do. Okay. That's a good good thought. Um, Number four on your list is that the past is always predictive of the future. That's the uh, misconception. You know, one of the things that we do here at Validia is we look for strategies that have um, been demonstrable over time, strategies with long-term back tests, 
strategies that come from investors that have outperformed the market over long periods of time. But I think your point in this wasn't to totally discount that as much as it was just to think that, you know, the past doesn't always predict itself in the markets and the markets are actually very uncertain. We have what we have in terms of the performance and the strategies that have worked, but it's not a hundred percent sure thing um, ever when investing in the markets. Right. I'm, I'm a very big believer in base rates. I think it's the best way to predict the future. And, you know, base rates are just looking at what's happened historically and saying, you know, in similar situations to what I'm in right now, what happened in the past. And so with, with factors, the base rates are very strong. You know, you're, if over the long term, value looks really good, you know, when you look at it from a, a base rate perspective. But it doesn't mean that everything that happened in the past is always going to repeat itself. And sometimes things do change. And so we talked about the size factor before. It's you know, it's now commonly believed that the size factor may not work. You know, just buying small stocks may not produce any excess return. The, the data to back up the size factor, it hasn't worked in a long time, and the long-term data doesn't back up the size factor as much as it used to. Or something like the price to book. The price to book has worked for a really long time as well, but it's going through a period of struggle now. And there's a reason behind, you know, those struggles. If, if you look at something like the fact that intangible assets are now 85% or so of of the assets on companies' balance sheets, you could say, well, the price to book doesn't make sense anymore. Something's changed in the world, and now the price to book doesn't make sense. And I'm not arguing one way or another on that, but it's just important to understand that you can't always look at the past and say what's happened in the past is going to repeat itself because sometimes things that have never happened before happen, and sometimes things that have worked for really long periods of time stop working. So that, that was the point on that misconception. Yeah. Just one uh, point on the size factor. It is interesting that like, you know, you would think smaller companies are riskier. So therefore you should have a premium in the market to get compensated for that risk. And yet, you know, I think it might be going back to the uh, late 70s where, you know, size just hasn't given you the premium return that it had previously. And so that takes that whole risk um aspect of, you know, getting compensated for higher risk things in the market and sort of turns it upside down. But we also know that low vol is another sort of low, lower risk um, factor that does show market outperformance. So I just think that's an interesting thing to think about is you think you should get compensated for that risk of small over large, um, but it doesn't always work out that way. That's right. And, you know, if you look at the, the original CAPM, you see the same thing. So the, the original CAPM would predict that high beta stocks are going to produce an excess return because they're riskier. And that's pretty much been completely debunked now. There, the evidence shows that high beta stocks do not produce an excess return. So it's important to take the risks that, are get, that get compensated over the long term. And data shows that a risk like value gets compensated over the long term, but a risk like beta, it doesn't anymore. And so mm -hmm. th that's another example of things can change. You know, there was a period 20 years ago, everybody was a believer in the CAPM, and now things have gone the other way. And now the, it, it's commonly accepted that high beta stocks don't produce any excess return you know, commensurate with the risk they're, they're taking. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, the fifth point, and this is something that, you know, uh, I think you can talk a lot to, um, but the fifth point is that these, uh, factor based strategies, systematic based strategies are free of human emotion. Um, I mean, one of the things, you know, is because we run a lot of different strategies and we extract and build them, you know, there's a level of in, interpretation, implementation, and, you know, a bunch of human decisions that go into constructing those. So if you want to talk to that, I think that's interesting because, you know, I think on the surface, people sort of look at these factor strategies and just think, well, it's completely quantitative. There's no human involvement. Um, and that's really the furthest thing from the truth. 
Right. So on a basic level, you know, you, you could say they're free from emotion because once the strategy is built, if, if you follow that strategy and you never change it, right. it's free from emotion. Of course, but yeah. the reality is, first of all, somebody built that strategy. You know, in our case, it's me, but it could be anyone. You know, somebody built that strategy and that person has their own biases. That person, you know, is subject to emotion and impacting their decision making. That person is subject to something like data mining where they're they're looking at the past and finding a relationship that doesn't really exist. Mm -hmm. So in the construction of the strategy, you know, all our human problems are there. And then also these strategies are all going to have periods where they don't work. And so, again, that's where the person behind the strategy is really important because as someone running a strategy, I can decide during those periods it doesn't work. I want to change something. I want to tweak this. I want to decide right. that this doesn't work anymore. And so my biases, you know, affect that decision-making process. And so it's important to understand factor strategies are great for limiting emotion, but they don't eliminate it. The the person who's building and constructing that strategy, mm -hmm. their emotions play a role in in how that strategy is set up and also how it's run over time. Yeah, it's very very important. Um concept I think for investors to think about and understand okay um, number six is that uh, you know you should expect to match the performance or the academic results in the real world yeah and you know academic results are really important they're the basis for a lot of the things we do but it's also important to understand the difference between what goes on in an academic environment and what goes on in the real world and so the first one would be academic results are typically done on a long short basis so mm -hmm. what they'll do with a specific factor is, let's use value as an example. If I'm constructing an academic test in value, what I'll do is I'll buy the 10% of stocks that are cheapest according to value, and then I will short the 10% the that are the most expensive. Well, in the real world, all these smart beta ETFs we're using, they're cutting out the short side of that. They're only using the long side of that. And so it's important when you look at academic results to make sure that the long side stood on its own. So if, if you have a test where most of the results came from shorting the expensive stocks, then trying to build a strategy where I'm only long the cheapest stocks is not going to work because I'm, the ex I'm losing the excess return that came along with shorting the expensive stocks. And with the, with the major factors, th this works out fine. You know, value works as a long-only factor. Momentum works as a long-only factor. But it's just important to, when you're looking at the testing to understand that most of these tests are long-short, and in, in the real world, we're, we're mostly doing long-only. In addition to that, there's some other things in these academic tests you have to keep in mind. Um, one is, you know, a, a lot of times small and illiquid stocks can be in these academic tests. And if a lot of the results came from those small and illiquid stocks, you have to be careful about using it in the real world where you can't yep. buy those small and illiquid stocks. And also transaction costs. In, in academic testing, they have to try to estimate transaction costs. And in the real world, we have real transaction costs. And so at times that can be, it can work both ways. Sometimes they overestimate them, sometimes they underestimate them. But it's just important to understand that they, these academic studies don't have real world transaction costs in them. And, you know, in terms of the models we run that are based on long-term back tests or academic papers, would you say that we, uh, at least in the model environment, have our models come somewhat close to those academic results, or does it really depend on the model and the, the environment and the period? I mean, our strategies, the longest ones only go back to 03, so we don't have, you know, decades and decades worth of research here. Um, well, the first thing is the the ones that were long short in the academic paper. Obviously, our results are going to be very different right. than the academic results, just because we're right. not long short. Right, right. And so those were, were not going to match. And then the other thing that's important is the 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 period that you measure these in is really important. And so right now we're looking at a period we've been running these for say 15 years. That 15 years, 10 of those years was a was a period where value struggled very yeah. struggled mightily. And so. 
we will see, you know, in our value strategies, we'll see worse results maybe than the academic results because we've gone through one of the worst periods for value. Whereas maybe in some of our growth and momentum strategies, we might see better results than the academic results. But in both cases, it's a function of the period we're measuring over. So right. it's a function of that 15-year period. Like I know with our Piotrowski model, you know, it hasn't, it's been a really tough, uh, you know, decade for that strategy. I mean, we, I think we run it a lot tighter than what Piotrowski did in his paper, but we also don't run the short side. Um, so yeah, yeah that model is, you know, the first criteria of that model is the price to book ratio and the price right. to book ratio has been the worst valuation ratio you could use over the past decade. And so these strategies that use the price to book ratio, they've all been struggling badly. And, you know, the flip side of that is the paper we do based on Mohan Ram, um, uses the opposite of that. So that, that paper starts with the most expensive stocks according to the price to book and then tries to find the criteria that filter out the growth stocks that end up doing well over time from the ones that don't. And interestingly enough, that's been the best performer over the past 10 years of all of our strategies. So a strategy that uses buy the most expensive stocks as its first criteria has been our best strategy over the past 10 years. And that tells you a lot about that decade-long period, what it actually looked like. You know, if, if of the 45 strategies we run, the best performer is one that starts with buying the most expensive stocks. And, you know, traditionally buying the most expensive stocks has been a bad idea. Um, this paper tries to filter out, obviously, the best expensive stocks, but still, it tells you a lot about this period to understand that the best performer of all 45 is a strategy that started with buy the most expensive stocks. And that might be, you know, this isn't in your article, but that might be um, another sort of lesson. It's not a misconception so much as, you know, when you're looking at these factor-based strategies, either now or in the future, looking at them in the context of the market environment that they were launched in and managed in and rolled out in because you know that's obviously going to be a huge influencing factor on the underlying performance of the strategy i think you know when we look back 10 15 20 years from now the factor strategy still standing of course they're going to be most influenced by the type of market environment and what type of factors were being rewarded during that period i mean factor investing in the in the real world with actual money and actual portfolios is still you know, relatively young. I think the first factor strategies may have been like, you know, 2005, 2006. I don't know if they go back like much further than that. So we only have, you know, it seems like a long time, but 10 or 15 years worth of performance is not. So the point is, is just when you're looking at these factor strategies to look at the type of environment that, you know, when you're looking at performance, the type of environment that we've been through and what type of stocks have been rewarded, factors have been and rewarded. That's why ideally, if you're looking at the academic testing behind the models, you want to see 30 plus years mm, because value can go yep. and any factor can go in the, over these long periods where it's underperformed. But we, we have never seen a 30 year period where value struggled. And right. so once you get out beyond 30 years, you're typically going to see all the different types of markets. You're going to see the bull markets. You're going to see the bear markets. You're going to see value outperforming. You're going to see growth outperforming. You're going to see pretty much everything. And so that's why it's important to see those 30 plus year periods so you can put everything in context and understand what's going on better. All right. Well, that's a great um, overview. Uh, hopefully, uh, if you're listening to this, you learned a little bit more about factors and some of the uh, misconceptions with them. And um, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJCarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.